This is WVEWLP, Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. And this is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. We're here every Sunday at noon, and this is Anna for Indigo Radio. We are a group of educators that look to learn through engaging with others in both our community and throughout the world. And you can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. And happy Sunday, everyone. This is Anna. I am recording from my home here in Brattleboro. Today's show is about the importance of understanding the science of disease and population health, both in relation to coronavirus, but also in general. And yesterday I was able to interview my brother, Dr. Luke Milani. Luke has been a longtime professor of international health at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He has spent over 20 years in public health and has worked a lot around the issue of maternal and child health. He's done much around working to reduce infant mortality rates And most notably, his work has been in Nepal, but he also has worked in a number of other places, including on the Thai-Burma border and in Bangladesh. In 2015, Luke won the John Hopkins Global Achievement Award for his work around newborn mortality rates in Nepal. His study, which he actually began as a doctoral student, demonstrated that the application of an inexpensive antiseptic called chlorhexidine to umbilical cords reduced newborn mortality by over one-third. And after Luke and other researchers in the field tested and confirmed these findings, the World Health Organization added chlorhexidine to its model list of essential medicines for children and recommended it globally for babies born in high-risk settings. Today, Luke is a senior scientist at the John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, and I was able to interview him yesterday on all things epidemiology. So we covered many things from understanding the importance of testing uh, to vaccines, to even what a virus is and how it interacts within our body. We're going to start with a song. We're going to go to Youngstown by Bruce Springsteen. Uh, Luke and I are big fans of Bruce Springsteen, so I thought it would be great to start off the show with that. Uh, So stay with us for a whole show on epidemiology. Here in Northeast Ohio, back in 1803, James and Danny Heaton found a yard that was lined in Yellow Creek. They built a blast furnace. They're along the shore And they made the cannonballs That helped the Union win the war Here in Youngstown Here in Youngstown My sweet Jenny, I'm sinking down Here, darling, in Youngstown Well, my daddy worked the furnace, kept up hotter than hell. I come home from now, I'm working my way to Scarford at 
job would suit the devil as well They'll attack an night cook and limestone Fed my children and made my pay Them smokestacks reaching like the arms of God And do beautiful skies soot in clay Here in Youngstown Here in Youngstown Sweet Jenny, I'm sinking down Here, darling, in Youngstown With my daddy come on the Ohio Works when he come home from World War II Now the yard's just scrapping rubble He said them big boys did what Hitler couldn't do Yeah, these mills, they built the tanks and bombs that won this country's war. We sent our sons to Korea and Vietnam. Now we're wondering what they were died for. Here in Youngstown, here in Youngstown, my sweet Jenny, I'm sinking down. Here, darling, in Youngstown. From the Monongahela Valley to the Masabi Iron Range, the coal mines of Appalachia, the story's always the same. 700 tons in the middle of the day, now so you tell me the world's changed. Once I made you rich enough, rich enough to forget my name. In Youngstown. My sweet Jenny, I'm sinking down Here, darling, in Youngstown When I die, I don't want no part of heaven I would not do heaven's work well I pray the devil comes and takes me to stand The fiery furnaces of hell Bruce Springsteen, Youngstown, and this is Anna for Indigo Radio. We're going to go right to part one of my interview with Dr. Luke Milani, and this show is all about epidemiology, and we start with him talking about what that is and what public health means to him. Good morning, Luke. Thanks so much for spending the hour with Indigo Radio today. Last night, I was talking with our youngest sister, Carolyn, and I was telling her about how when I started my own doctoral work in public health at UMass, I had to take an intro to epidemiology class. And that was when I realized that you were an epidemiologist. And you ended up, you probably remember this, you ended up tutoring me in that class. Because right. uh, I, I pretty much hadn't seen a math problem for about 20 years or so. Carolyn laughed and, and said that she didn't know what epidemiology was until about two months ago with the beginning of this global pandemic we find ourselves in. And I would imagine that this is the experience of many. So this show is to really help us all strip to some basics and clear up some misinformation. So I would love for you to start off with 
telling us what is epidemiology and what is the importance of understanding just what it is, especially right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, epidemiology is one of the scientific disciplines in public health. I would call it one of the tools of public health. You know, just like Carolyn said, uh, she's become more aware of epidemiology because of the current crisis that we're in. I think over the past 20 years, there have been a number of incidents that have, from time to time, brought some of the language of public health, including epidemiology, to the fore. Certainly 30 years ago, 30 or 40 years ago, really now, with, with the HIV epidemic, uh, and then uh, things like SARS, um, swine flu, now, of course, the COVID, the coronavirus uh, outbreak that we're having. These sorts of events uh, bring public health and epidemiology into sort of popular press, and and everyone's now exposed to these things. And um, But because it's uh, maybe not as familiar as other parts of of uh, public health or personal medicine, people aren't as, as clear as to what uh, epidemiology really is. But um, a simple way to describe it is the is a it's a scientific discipline that studies the health of populations. You know, epi the word epi it's actually epidemiology comes from uh, the Greek Greek words. Actually, epi means upon. Demi is people, so it's upon the people. It, when we think about diseases that come over a population or upon a population, um, that's where we can understand the root of the word epidemiology. So it's a study of diseases upon populations, across populations rather than upon individuals. And that's certainly what we're experiencing right now. Right. In the intro to the show, I talked about your doctoral work in Nepal and your work on maternal and child health. But before going into public health, you were going to go into medical school. And um, from what I remember, you deferred, I think, for a year and you did some work in Angola. I was wondering if you could talk about how this experience in Angola ultimately led you to John Hopkins and switching from the path of medical school and into public health. And in that, what what then public health means to you? Right. So, yeah, I, I was planning to um, pursue a career in medicine. Uh, as you know, we come from a family with a, a lot of doctors, so I'd, something I'd been exposed to. And um, I studied mathematics, though, in, in college. And although still intending to go to medical school, uh, I was coming at the, you know, the field from a sort of quantitative background. And perhaps that's what led me to, before going to medical school, try and understand health at a population level. That's what I was doing when I volunteered in, in Africa, in Southwest Africa, in Angola. And while I was there, I was, it was really my first exposure to what, uh, you know, thinking about health of populations rather than health of individuals, uh, because mm-hmm. I saw, you know, I, got a, I became um, engaged in a program with the Ministry of Health uh, of Angola to uh, actually distribute polio vaccine, and uh, actually another program where we started monitoring the growth rates of of children. And so I began doing things and being exposed to questions about uh, the health of entire groups of people rather than individuals. And that became uh, very interesting to me. And so when my period of volunteer work uh, in Angola was had completed, I sort of reevaluated what I wanted to do and, and realized that there was this whole field of population health where I could really come at the problem from sort of a quantitative perspective rather than thinking more about uh, individual medicine. And in many ways, epidemiology at its base is about counting things, and I've always loved to count. So it seemed like I could uh, bring my uh, you know, love of sort of 
quantitative <laughs> analysis uh, to the problem. And uh, that's what led me to explore career in, in, uh, in public health. And uh, in fact, my master's degree in, in, uh, at Johns Hopkins um, School of Public Health was actually in biostatistics. So I was maintaining that uh, quantitative angle. Um, and then mm -hmm. I went on to do my PhD in, in international health, international epidemiology, uh, where I focused on issues related to the health of babies and, 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 and mums, uh, so maternal and child health. Yeah, and I like this, what you say, that in, a, in an essence that epidemiology uh, or one of the core things is about counting things. And what I have learned in, in much of my study and something I'm really interested in public health is that suffering and sickness is not uh, an equal opportunity issue, right? So, and, and this is something that you've talked about. I was reading an article that you were interviewed and this was a while back and you were talking about your work in Nepal, or sorry, no, you were actually talking about your work in Angola. And you were talking about how individual health is very susceptible to forces outside of a person's control. So thinking about the bigger social, economic, and political forces that shape health. And you said, this is your quote, individuals don't even have the choice to be vaccinated when there is no stable supply of electricity to support a cold chain for vaccine distribution. And I wanted you just to talk about how epidemiology measures and numbers can really draw people's attention to that. Yeah, so one of the uh, important aspects of public health and, and the use of epidemiology to study the, the health of the public is to try and understand the underlying patterns of disease and how disease and, and health conditions are distributed across the population. As you just mentioned, these are not distributed evenly. And so the, epidemiolo the, the tools of epidemiology help public health scientists try and understand uh, what are the factors that are related to disease. Why does one subset of a population uh, suffer more than another subset? What are the factors related to the individuals in that subset? What are the factors related to the environment in which the sub, that subpopulation uh, is, is living in? What are the socioeconomic uh, factors? What are the climate uh, factors? What are the political mm -hmm. factors that impact uh, rates of disease? Mm -hmm. And public health is a, you know, it, it uses scientific tools, but it's a multidisciplinary field that uh, doesn't just engage scientific domains. It leverages uh, a variety of tools, a variety of scientific approaches, but also beyond science, there's, there are socioeconomic issues, there are political issues that are important ingredients in the way uh, public health works. And uh, often those, those can be in conflict. Um, and so public health is a very broad field that tries to incorporate multiple issues and multiple disciplines uh, to try and promote the health of individuals, to promote the health of communities, and promote the health of uh, you know, entire populations.
Greyhound station I'm gonna buy a ticket to ride I'm gonna find that lady With two or three kids And sit down by her side A ride till the sun comes up And down around about two or three times Smoking cigarettes in the last seat Sing the song for the people of me And get along with it all Where the people say y'all I sing a song with a friend Change the shape that I'm in And get back in the game And start playing again I'd like to stay But I might have to go To start over again I might go back down to Texas Or go to somewhere That I've never been Get up in the morning and go out at night and I won't have to go home Get used to being alone Change the words to this song And start singing again Singer-songwriter John Prine with Clay Pigeons. Prine died on April 7th from complications of COVID-19 at the age of 73. We're here with Dr. Luke Milani talking all about epidemiology. We're going to go to part two where Luke talks a lot about the virus and how it interacts with our bodies. One of the most sort of basic questions was around the the language around disease versus virus versus a germ, and also around what we should be saying, COVID-19, coronavirus. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there's certainly a lot of terms to, to wrap your head around. And, uh, you know, terms aren't always used consistently across, uh, you know, different sources and in the popular press and things like that. But, uh, you know, at the base, uh, what we're dealing with is a, a novel coronavirus. We're dealing with a virus. Uh, a virus is, you can think of it as a small piece of genetic information. There are many, many viruses, millions of different viruses, uh, and they infect humans, uh, other animal species, uh, plants. They've been with us, uh, well, they're before us and will be <laughs> probably outlast humans as well. Um, <laughs> right. But basically, uh, you know, a virus is different than, say, a bacteria. A virus, uh, a bacteria is a living thing. A bacteria can also cause infection and disease, but can replicate itself and reproduce itself. A virus can't do that. A virus mm -hmm. is basically a small piece of genetic information. Um, you can have an RNA virus, you can have a, you know, a DNA virus. But in general, this is genetic information that has to find its way into a host cell. And then it uses the machinery of that host cell uh, to replicate and normally uh, viruses 
you know, that whether or not a virus is successful could be from, a, I guess, from the virus's perspective, if it had one, would be if it can replicate itself and continue to replicate itself. That's really all it really wants to do. Some viruses will cause such a breakdown in its host that it will not be successful in the long run replicating itself. So a virus will be more successful if, in fact, it doesn't cause too much damage to its host. It needs to cause a minimal amount of damage such that the host can still carry out the replication machinery and allow the virus to, to spread to, to other hosts. Right. So in order for it to, the, the virus lives on a host and then to replicate again, it needs to pass to another person, right? Or is, mm -hmm. is that how you explain it? No, no, it replicates within the host. So the virus will enter a host cell and then pr produce many more copies of itself within that host. And Normally, what will happen, for example, with the coronavirus, we see that the, the host, in this case humans, have uh, the ability to transmit that virus and shed the virus and transmit it to other individuals. And that's it, this particular coronavirus has very high transmissibility. Uh, the virus is able to not just replicate within the host, but then the host is spreading it to other uh, hosts, uh, other humans, and those humans are replicating the virus and spreading it to others. And so this virus is moving around very easily uh, to mm -hmm. um, many different individuals. You know, you can contrast that with uh, Ebola virus. Ebola virus, also a virus that in infects a human host, replicates, uh, and then is shed by the host. But in fact, the Ebola virus does much more damage uh, to individuals. The fatality rate for a very dangerous virus like Ebola virus is very high. Uh, in fact, that actually helps humans overcome it because uh, it means that it's not uh, spread so easily. Uh, mm -hmm. It actually is, is very, it's spread very easily, but uh, the number of individuals that get infected is, it tends to be less because it does so much damage to the host. So it's like, in a way, the, the coronavirus, because it spreads so quickly and in ways there is a lower fatality rate, it becomes, I mean, I guess what we're seeing here, very unmanageable. That's right. There are a number of coronaviruses. Uh, this is called a novel coronavirus. It's a new coronavirus. But coronavirus have been with us for a long time. They actually cause uh, quite a number of uh, a large proportion of the common cold. You know, this particular novel coronavirus is one that, uh, like other zoonoses, that is a virus that has jumped from an animal species, a non-human animal, uh, to the humans, the human species. There have been a number of these in the last couple of decades, a number of coronaviruses that have jumped from an animal species to humans. So it's thought that the current coronavirus that we're dealing with originated uh, as a bat uh, virus uh, and may have passed from bats uh, to humans uh, through some intermediate uh, animal species. I'm not very familiar with the science uh, that's ongoing uh, around this, but my understanding is that the uh, like uh, SARS coronavirus from you know the previous decade, early 2000s, it's thought that this particular one comes from bats. This may have been passed to humans. Uh, doesn't often directly jump from bats to to humans, although that is a possibility, as I understand it. Uh, but often through an intermediate species. In this case, there's some indication that uh, the coronavirus that we're dealing with today may have moved from bats to a uh, pangolin and from pangolin to to humans thinking about how a virus can jump from an animal to a human what is it that makes us similar 
to keep that virus alive from, a, say, a bat? There are lots of barriers to um, a virus moving from one species to another. But, uh, you know, this can happen, and it happens uh, perhaps more frequently than we really understand. Uh, but it certainly can happen as we sort of start to remove or break down the habitat barriers between humans uh, and, and other species. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, viruses can be transmitted uh, through, you know, for example, the coronavirus can be transmitted through uh, respiratory droplets. And respiratory droplets can, uh, you know, if it can move from, uh, from one animal species to another, it may do that. But that doesn't mean it will be successful uh, in a second species or in, in the next species. Coronaviruses, on the other hand, have, have adapted over time and they seem to be more adapt or adept at uh, transmoving, in a sense, from, from one species to another. Uh, this is in contrast to uh, avian influenzas. You know, there's a lot of concern, there has been a lot of concern about uh, avian influenzas uh, moving uh, from uh, various waterfowl to, to humans over the years. In fact, if we look back to 1918, the 1918 uh, influenza pandemic uh, was an avian influenza that moved from uh, birds to, to humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in general, coronaviruses seem to be more adept at this than avian influenzas. Uh, this is something that you know has concerned the you know global uh, community for for many many years. Uh, the mm-hmm. uh, possibility of a novel coronavirus or a novel virus, I should say, moving from animal species to to humans and causing uh, you know a widespread pandemic. The outcomes can be worse because uh, when a novel virus has jumped to uh, humans, humans do not have a built-up immunity to that particular virus. We haven't experienced that virus before, and so mm-hmm. if a virus that jump that moves from a animal to human species uh, is able to uh, replicate in that human in the humans, then that can be cause for a lot of concern because unlike uh, other coronaviruses that we're used to. Uh, or even the influenza viruses that circulate from year to year, uh, for which some proportion of the population will have uh, some immunity to, we're in a situation with a novel virus where you know our species has not experienced this particular virus, so there's no immunity at all. I've heard that the virus can morph and that there's different strains. And can you say what that means? And also along with that, does that mean that people can be reinfected? Yeah, well, there's sort of a lot of unknowns about that. Um, first of all, viruses mutate often. Virus species have different levels of stability. But as I said at the outset, you know, a virus is a piece of genetic information. And it's really not that much information. We can think of it, um, you know, genetic information, we often represent it as a series of letters that represent different bases in, in, in RNA or DNA. And so you could think of a virus as a couple of pages of letters, Viruses are replicating uh, thousands of times. And so you can think if, if we were to copy, you know, let's say we had a page of letters that we needed to copy, many times when we would copy that down on another piece of paper, we might do that faithfully and copy each letter for letter perfectly. Uh, but occasionally we may make a mistake. And this is what happens when a virus uh, replicates. It's copying its genetic information. And occasionally one of the letters will be misplaced or it will be uh, inverted or be deleted or new letters will be put in. Uh, and so the genetic information is not exactly the same each time a virus replicates. Now, this happens actually even in within a human. Uh, so within the same host as a virus mm. is replicating, uh, it may not replicate exactly the same. 
Now, coronavirus is actually relative to other viruses, say, for example, relative to HIV. Coronaviruses have a, a set of proteins that actually uh, double check their work. So it's sort of like um, editing and uh, you know, doing, a, doing a check of its copy. How, how faithfully did it copy? Uh, and so it, coronavirus is actually more stable than some viruses that don't do this double checking. But it still does uh, mutate, meaning that not every, you know, if you were to sample a thousand copies of the virus from a thousand different people or a thousand different, you know, different populations, you might not see the exact set of letters. This doesn't necessarily mean that the virus is becoming more dangerous. In fact, some of the mutations might make the virus uh, weaker. It may not be able then to create the uh, proteins, the lipid layer around the genetic material. It may not be able to replicate itself in a way that uh, increases survival. Uh, it may decrease survival. Uh, but over time, you know, viruses will, will mutate. And that's why you, have, you can have different strains of the virus appear over time. You were just listening to Dr. Luke Milani, epidemiologist, has spent over 20 years in the field of public health, and he was helping us understand a little bit more about how a virus works and strains and the morphing of a virus. We're going to go to a song. We're going to go to Betty Wright. Uh, Betty died on May 10th from a battle with cancer. This is her song, Clean Up Woman. This is Indigo Radio you're listening to. And this next piece of the interview with my brother, Luke, he talks about antibodies and he's going to get into vaccines. Growing up, Luke often helped us, especially with our math. We used to joke that Luke liked to read math books for fun, but really I think 
he did. And Luke is really good at explaining very complicated things simply. And listening to this piece on antibodies reminded me so much of Luke helping me with homework, even just recently, you know, a couple of years ago, helping me with my epidemiology homework. So here again is Dr. Luke Milani. Can you also explain uh, antibodies and if they present in someone, can they infect someone else? Do they assist in, in fighting the virus? Uh, I think there's definitely confusion around the antibodies. Yeah, there is. Uh, some people may have seen recent uh, reports in the press about even, you know, state labs and the CDC mixing up uh, the results of tests that, uh, that aim to diagnose an individual versus tests that aim to understand whether or not a person has antibodies. And these are different. Yeah. When a virus uh, enters uh, the human, uh, the human's immune system will jump into action. In the second stage of the immune response to the virus, the immune system will try to make antibodies. That is, it tries to remember the exposure. In very simple terms, it's trying to remember the exposure of this invading uh, foreign body, okay, this, this virus. And the reason it wants to do that is it, it wants to create, a, this is called invoking an immune response that allows the human to uh, more rapidly attack that virus if it comes back again, okay? So you can imagine, I mean, this may be a sort, sort of a silly example, but like a Trojan horse comes in and takes the, uh, takes the, the army by surprise, oh, what is this wooden horse that's come in? We don't know what this is. And suddenly uh, they've been attacked and there's a, 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 a poor outcome. But after that attack, perhaps the, the body politic there decides to create a, you know, sort of a SWAT team that says, okay, next time we see that type of horse, we'll know what it is and we won't be taken by surprise. This is what the body's mm -hmm. trying to do. The first time the body is exposed to this virus, it doesn't necessarily know what it is. The virus is able to replicate many, many times the individual becomes ill, uh, but at the same time uh, generates an immune response that creates memory. And these, this memory is, we call these antibodies. And so later, if you test an individual, you can actually determine whether or not the person was exposed to the disease by looking for antibodies that match the virus. So the coronavirus has a sort of a lipid bilayer around its genetic information. And on top of this lipid bilayer is a, a spike protein. And that spike protein is actually what gives the corona its name, because if you look at it under a microscope, these, these uh, spikes make it look like a, the spikes of a crown. It, the virus uses that spike protein to connect, to uh, attach or bind to receptors on, on host cells. And uh, what the immune response, the antibodies uh, do is they create a match to that receptor and are able to, the next time the virus uh, enters the host, are able to match uh, to that spike protein and prevent the spike protein from binding to human cells. And that's what gives you your immunity. So the next time you're exposed to the virus, the antibodies that you have developed because of your previous exposure are able to capture the virus and no longer allow it to uh, attach to the, to the host. So we have diagnostic tests that uh, we are trying to use uh, when someone uh, comes to a, a provider and says, I feel ill with these certain symptoms, and we want to confirm whether or not the person currently has the virus. We use 
a PCR test. This is a test that uh, actually tries to uh, identify the virus itself, whereas an antibody test is what we use later to try and understand whether a person has been exposed in the past. And that test is actually looking to see whether the, uh, the, the individual has these, uh, these memory antibodies. So they're very different uh, types of tests. So if you have antibodies, will that possibly help if you were to say get a different strain of it? Uh, that's uh, a question. Right now, we don't know an, uh, enough about the different types of antibodies that may be produced against the uh, coronavirus. Currently, there are numbers. I, what I've heard is there may be a handful of main different strains of the coronavirus that are out there. There are many more mutations, uh, but a number of different sort of large classes of strains. And the current thinking is that the say the vaccines that are being targeted, currently being targeted against this spike protein um, or a different unit, a subunit of that protein are sufficient to cover most of the strains. Now, if the antibodies that our bodies are producing against the strains are equivalent in a sense across those strains, then the antibody uh, that you produce because of exposure to one strain would give you cross protection to another strain. Uh, but if that's not the case, if the antibodies that you produce are specific to only one strain, then it is possible that you could be infected with a second strain. This is not something we know enough about right now. Okay. I mean, that's really helpful, though, your ex explanation around the antibodies, because it also makes me realize, I mean, our bodies are amazing in ways in how you describe the immunity process. Yes, um, uh, it, it's a very complex uh, system that's evolved over many years and and many eons. And this is, you know, why we are able to invoke a strong immune, immune response to uh, many uh, illnesses. And it's also why we have, you know, lifelong protection against certain illnesses. Mm -hmm. So actually, let's jump to that right now, because that was some of the other questions was around vaccines. Yeah, talk a little bit about the process for developing a vaccine and how a vaccine works. Right. So I'm certainly not a vaccinologist, but um, I think we can talk about the broad outlines of how vaccines work and what they try and do. As I mentioned, the idea behind a vaccine is to try and give individuals exposure to the illness such that it will invoke an immune response in that individual so that they are protected if the real disease or the real virus was to come along. So there are a number of different approaches to vaccines. You could think of the sort of first step, the most basic way would be to take the viral material and try and weaken it in some way uh, and then expose the uh, individual to that uh, weakened low dose exposure of the virus. This would generate the same type of immune response that I talked about. The, hum the immune system would recognize the viral components that were injected uh, by the vaccine into the body and would generate an immune response to that such that later, if that individual was in fact exposed to the virus, uh, antibodies would be there, the immune response would have been invoked and would be prepared to protect the individual from disease. If you think about, uh, for example, the, the flu vaccine that we get each year, the flu vaccine mm -hmm. Uh, we actually grow the, the viral information in uh, chicken eggs to, 
create a large quantity of the viral information that that information is then the virus component is then uh, packaged uh, along with other components uh, they may be adjuvant proteins they may be preservatives etc uh, and then it is uh, the the humans exposed and we can do that in a number of ways for example the the nasal uh, vaccine actually is a weakened form of influenza uh, and so it is possible uh, with that type of uh, vaccine where it's a weakened form of the virus uh, that you might feel a little bit ill from vaccine. And this is why uh, those types of vaccines are not ones that we generally can give to people with weak immune systems. We have other approaches to vaccines where we actually um, only use a, a small uh, subcomponent of the, the viral information um, such that it's completely inert. So in fact, the um, intramuscular influenza vaccine that we provide is an inert uh, vaccine. And so you cannot become ill from influenza by getting the intramuscular vaccine. And so the, the reason we have these different approaches is so that we can also provide, uh, you know, the vaccines to people with, say, weakened immune systems. And what's your outlook or what do you think about what's happening with the potential vaccine for coronavirus? Well, certainly, though, a lot of people are hanging their hat and their hopes on, on a vaccine in the future uh, for uh, coronavirus. And I think there are a number of reasons to be hopeful, uh, but there are also a number of reasons to temper our enthusiasm for how this will be. On, on the hopeful side, this is such a global crisis and one that has you know, captured the attention of the entire world that uh, many more resources will be put into pursuing a vaccine for this particular illness than might be for some of the other illnesses that people point to as uh, you know possible reasons why we shouldn't uh, be be hopeful you know many many there are many illnesses for which we have tried to develop vaccines for which we have not been able to you know the best example of this is HIV we've been trying to develop an HIV vaccine for 40 years uh, and uh, we've not uh, you know been able to do that now Coronavirus is actually a lot more stable than HIV, as I mentioned. That actually helps in our favor. And there, as I said, there are many, many groups, uh, hundreds of groups, maybe thousands of groups working around the world, around the clock to try and develop a vaccine for coronavirus. Now, it may not be that we can develop a vaccine uh, in the time frame that people are talking about. A lot of people saying, oh, by the end of the year, perhaps we'll have a vaccine. And then other people, I think, are rightly cautioning that it can mm -hmm. take many years to develop a vaccine uh, that is you know, safe uh, and effective. And then even when you do develop a vaccine that's safe and effective, uh, distributing a vaccine to a very large population is not an easy thing to do. So there's a timeframe issue. There's a, mm -hmm. do, we do we have the logistic you know, set up to, to do that? Um, how, how do we overcome the logistic administrative barriers to distributing a vaccine on the wide scale. Um, I think there's also, there are geo, sort of geopolitical forces here that uh, will come into play. There are different centers that are racing to try and develop a vaccine. And then the question will be, well, how do you distribute that fairly? Who should be, who should receive the vaccine first? How do you prioritize uh, the population uh, that might need it most? versus the population that might have the power to access the vaccine first. 
Right. That's so tied into, I, I feel like what we were first talking about around distribution and the equity around health and vaccinations too, that I know that certainly concerns me. And as you mentioned, a lot of factors are going to play into that. Absolutely. Developing a virus is a long-term project. I think probably many of the listeners have heard that there are already vaccines that are being tried, tested uh, in humans. There are a number that are being tested in in monkeys. These tests uh, start with a very small number of individuals to try and understand really two things. Does the proposed candidate vaccine actually generate an immune response or not? If it doesn't, it's not going to be helpful. Uh, And also, does it do so in a safe manner? Are there side effects? And so this process is done in a very small number of individuals first. Uh, And then we move on to sort of a second phase where we uh, try and understand that safety and immune response profile in a larger number of individuals. We might even start to, in those second phase studies, start to develop, start to measure some other outcomes. Uh, We might start to get some information about to what degree does it it actually protect individuals uh, from the disease. And then in larger third phase studies, we roll the vaccine out to a much larger number of individuals and we actually directly measure the efficacy of the vaccine. We actually try and quantify the proportion of individuals uh, that the vaccine protects. Now, this can take a very long time. And in the current climate, uh, there are some individuals that feel as though when we talk about having a vaccine by the end of the year, we are not being realistic to our experience uh, with developing mm-hmm. vaccines from the past. Most vaccines have taken many, many years to develop uh, because there are fits and starts. There are problems initially. Those problems need to right. be solved. We move slowly because we want to protect the safety of individuals that are trying to help us understand mm-hmm. the safety and the immune response initially. On the other hand, uh, this is a, a situation that uh, is not conducive to, a, you know, or people are, are not, not patient, of course, and Rightly so. This is a crisis spreading throughout the world and people want results quickly and there's a lot of pressure to produce results. So I think that um, there's some reason to hope that we can develop a a vaccine that will uh, provide some protection. How much protection? We don't know. Uh, Does it have Mm -hmm. to be perfect? It does not. Our influenza vaccine saves many, many lives every year and it's not a perfect vaccine. Uh, in fact, we have to develop a new vaccine for influenza every year because the strains that circulate every year are different. Although some people will have immunity to those strains, others will not. And we're all always playing catch up. With the coronavirus, we think, as I said, more stable. But we, this doesn't mean that if we are exposed to the disease that we will have lifelong immunity. We might only be immune for two to three years. And then we may, may be uh, again susceptible to it. This could mean that a vaccine might be something that we have to take uh, every year or every couple of years or every three years, similar to the way we take uh, an influenza vaccine on a regular basis, but for different reasons. The coronavirus, we'd be doing that because it's, uh, you know, in a sense, not invoking a long immunity. The influenza vaccine, we do it because, in fact, we're actually trying to protect against different strains each year. Vaccines are not uh, easy. It's not, you know, our experience has not been that a virus comes along and we develop an effective vaccine for it and then we give it to everyone. 
you know, I think there are many, many concerns about uh, whether or not a vaccine is a near-term solution at all. And I think mm-hmm. our focus, uh, what my concern is, is not really that, oh, we'll never have a vaccine. That's not really what I think. I think we probably will make, will, will make progress developing a vaccine. My real concern is that it takes us away from some of the hard work that's required to live with the virus, to uh, you know, change the way we set up certain aspects of our society, but also to put in place some of the, the things like widespread testing, contact tracing capabilities. Those are hard things to do, but important, perhaps even more important than a vaccine because it puts us in a position where we would be able to deal with the next pandemic. Coronavirus is not the last pandemic. And uh, I'm concerned that too much focus on the vaccine as our savior is both a possible uh, setting us up for some disappointment, but Mm -hmm. also a way that we might, um, you know, not not necessarily misdirect resource. I think we should be putting a lot of resources into a vaccine, but it's a way for us to potentially not do the other things that are important. And we need to do the other things that are important. I think that's a really, really important point that you bring out because I think it's it's people need to think about how do we live differently in ways and how do we take care of each other and absolutely. This is Indigo Radio, and that was a Italian opera singer singing from her balcony. And I know that for me, uh, one of the moments of this time are people singing from their balconies. And I mean, for real, if I could sing like that, I would be serenading all of my South Main neighborhood every morning, because that's amazing. Unfortunately, I cannot sing like that, so I just keep it to Indigo Radio. All right, we're going to go back to the interview with Dr. Luke Milani, and we're going to head into talking about how to protect oneself. I want to begin with around contact tracing and testing and thinking about what is a country that you feel like is dealing with this well and maybe what the U.S. can learn from that country? Sure. So we're talking a lot about vaccines as a way to potentially protect ourselves. But at the heart of sort of public health, we want to think about many different ways in which we can prevent disease and protect populations. And there are many things we can do now uh, to protect ourselves uh, in the absence of uh, a vaccine. Uh, And one of those things, well, first and foremost, uh, certainly from an epi perspective, public health perspective that thinks a lot about uh, data and having information, we need to know who has been infected with the virus. 
uh, so that we can potentially isolate that person so that mm -hmm. we can uh, prevent that person from contacting many people and therefore reduce the risk that that person is able to transmit the virus to other people who then go on to transmit it to other people and so forth and so on. And this is what contact tracing is all about. The idea is to try and very quickly identify when someone uh, has been exposed to the virus and is sick with the virus, uh, and then go back and sort of ask that person, uh, well, who have you been in contact with recently? Who have you been in contact with for longer periods of time? Uh, and over what period of time were you in contact with those individuals? And then try and go to those individuals, potentially test them, uh, and potentially ask them the same set of contact tracing questions, or recommend that those people also uh, isolate, because if they mm -hmm. have been exposed, uh, they may be able to spread it to others. So contact tracing is all about trying to stop the transmission chain. And one of the problems and the challenges with uh, coronavirus and contact tracing is that we are beginning to understand that much of the transmission of the infection actually seems to occur either prior to a person having symptoms mm -hmm. uh, or among individuals who never will have symptoms at all. So there are people who will be exposed to the virus and in a sense become infected, uh, but do not, uh, and in fact are able to transmit the virus. It's replicating and they're able to shed it and transmit it to others even without having symptoms. So as you can imagine, this creates much more difficulty for a, an approach of contact tracing than an illness where you really only start to shed the disease and infect others when you yourself have symptoms. In that latter case, it's much easier to do contact tracing because you, in a sense, know who, are, who is transmitting the illness. But this doesn't mean that it's impossible. So asymptomatic spread is a challenge, but it doesn't mean that contact tracing uh, is not still a valuable approach. It is. The idea is to try and reduce the transmissibility of the illness, even if we can't uh, reduce that uh, to zero, we can certainly uh, reduce uh, it in some scope, and that can uh, prevent uh, overall transmission in the community. So mm -hmm. some countries have done contact tracing better than others. First of all, in order to do contact tracing, you need to have a testing capability. You need to have rapid testing capability. It has to be widespread throughout the community so that you're not waiting uh, for tests to get to individuals, that kind of thing. One of the problems mm -hmm. that we had in the United States was that we were not prepared with a testing plan. We were not prepared to uh, roll out a very large number of uh, accurate and efficient tests across the population. And some of those, uh, you know, some of the reasons for that uh, were, well, that's being debated. Uh, but uh, I think one thing that we can point to is that, the, uh, for example, in this country, we did not readily take up the test, the diagnostic test that was, had, was initially developed and approved, I believe it was developed in Germany, it was approved by the WHO well before uh, the outbreak here in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. Yet in the United States, I think, unfortunately, we determined that we would develop our own diagnostic test. And of course, we can do that. We had the capability to do that. There are many institutions in this country that were able to develop their own tests. But we had another barrier, which was that we had uh, some regulatory bodies, for example, like the FDA, that was not willing to approve uh, tests that individual institutions, say research universities that were able to develop tests, those tests weren't necessarily approved. 
And then we, even when we did a, develop our own test, uh, it wasn't the test kits weren't uh, of high quality. There were some problems with them, and these delayed testing more. And so we weren't able to roll out and have the the tests. We weren't able to roll out the tests and have them readily available in large quantities in a way that would enable an effective contact tracing program. A contact tracing really is important uh, at the beginning of the epidemic. Once the once there's widespread community spread, especially with a, a virus like coronavirus, where there's quite a bit of asymptomatic spread, contact tracing will be much more challenging, as I mentioned. Um, and we really need to get the virus sort of under control before we can, before contact tracing will become uh, more and more effective. But it's certainly something that we need to uh, be putting at near the very top of our list of approaches and strategies uh, to prevent uh, you know, a second wave or a second large outbreak in the United States. And I suppose that this is even more difficult now with a lot of the this whole reopening the economy. Well, we're in, certainly in, in a better country. position. Yeah, we're, we're certainly in a better position than we were at the start of the outbreak where we really, you know, we had no test. We had, you know, people weren't aware we weren't perhaps uh, giving consistent messages, you know, in terms of how the population should protect themselves. But I think many uh, individuals, experts would say that most of the areas, the states, counties, uh, do not really have the characteristics in terms of the numbers that we're looking at, the decline in cases, the decline in hospitalizations over a period of time uh, that would really warrant uh, reopening. Uh, on the other hand, we mentioned at the top of the program that you know public health does not exist in a vacuum and there are other things to think about. It makes sense that decision makers are under pressure here. This is not an easy question. There are many segments of the population that are suffering greatly because of the uh, reduced economic activity. Uh, as we know, mm -hmm. many people have less, lost their jobs and we don't necessarily have all of the uh, government programs in place uh, or running at the level of efficiency that would help protect those individuals or sort of mitigate the, the economic out, um, you know, outcomes of the reduced economic activity. And so uh, there, there are lots of things for decision makers to consider. And there's certainly a lot of pressure uh, from different aspects of society, different perspectives to try and somehow reopen activity. But at the same time, so it's at the same time, we want to do so in a way that, uh, you know, maximizes protection to people. So that means, you know, having the appropriate education programs in place, people are aware of what they can do themselves, you know, changing our work environments, protecting essential workers that are in contact with a lot of the public over the course of their workday or perhaps have to work in close quarters. We need to ensure that we are starting, restarting the normal functions and normal activities of our society in a way that, that protects individuals to the maximum possible. Um, and that, that has been a real challenge. I have many friends and other hosts here that are teachers and okay. a lot of them working with young children. And uh, one of the questions is that, so childcare centers are, work, are opening back up June 1st in Vermont and they're requiring them to wear masks and children who are two years old and up should be wearing them. And I think there's a a question around like working with young children during these times and maybe just the question of children in general. I think I know schools are grappling with what do we do about going back to school 
Is there any um, information that you could give us around both working with children and what maybe you think should happen? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's one that so many people are grappling with. First of all, let's talk about the virus itself in children. There has been some early misunderstanding uh, about the virus uh, because of the age-related factors that I mentioned, that the outcomes are worse among older people. This has led some people, especially initially, to think, oh, well, children will be fine if they are exposed to the virus. On the whole, children will do better if exposed to the virus. That is absolutely true. This does not mean that the virus is not dangerous for children. And I think we're seeing that uh, in a number of ways. We're seeing it as we do every year with flu. We hear tragic stories of young people who have the flu, appear to be fine and even recovering from the flu, and then suddenly take a very severe turn for the worse and die. So we have a number of cases like that where we have same type of hospitalization to intensive care to ventilation and, and, and death among young people. We also have uh, this uh, concern about this inflammatory syndrome. It's similar to a, a disease called Kawasaki syndrome. It seems to have uh, been identified in a number of places where young children, even very young children, um, are having a se severe inflammatory response uh, after being exposed to the uh, coronavirus. So it's certainly true we have to uh, not simply say, oh, well, kids will be fine, even if they were completely fine, which I have just tried to correct the perception that they are, they would still, they're still very good vectors. And we know that mm -hmm. this is a community effort. This is a everyone in it together type of situation where we cannot really think, oh, well, even if children are to do much better in terms of exposure and what the outcomes would be, they can still trans, you know, be very important, play a very important role in, in keeping the transmission high. And this is why it's not just an easy question of let's go back to school with kids, because everyone does realize they are great vectors in addition to being uh, you know, kids that we don't want them to be exposed anyway. But they're great vectors. They can carry the, the virus and, and spread it easily to uh, their parents and their parents may be working with older people, children may be mm -hmm. visiting their grandparents and things like that. I think like all of the other reopening questions that we have, it's going to be context specific. It's going to be, mm. to what extent have we got a hold of the uh, transmission in our community? Uh, is Vermont a place where transmission has been less so than others? Yes, in fact, it has. Does that, I'm not a particular expert on the situation in, in Vermont, but my guess would be uh, that Vermont may be in a better position to undertake some reopening activities than other states. Mm -hmm. um, but this has to be done sensibly because any community, of course, can very quickly have a situation where the illness or the virus starts spreading rapidly again. And so I know that this may not be specific to your question about children, but if the underlying epidemiologic uh, characteristics of the pandemic in a particular locale indicate that that place can you know, start reopening, uh, then I think that that can be undertaken, but it has to be undertaken sensibly. And it sounds like uh, from your description of the individuals who are making decisions for, for childcare uh, in Vermont, that they are trying to put up or put in place restrictions and, and, and masks and procedures mm -hmm. that, that can protect the children and protect the people that are, are working uh, with those children. But we yeah. have to, as I said before, we have to have the ability to, 
test quickly and trace individuals in order for those reopening activities to to remain in place and, and to be successful. When I was a little It's Sunday, and this is Indigo Radio. This is Anna. We're spending the hour on epidemiology, and that was Tina Turner with River Deep, Mountain High. It's one of my favorite songs. I've, it was painful to have to cut it, really. I've been on a Tina Turner kick lately. Okay, we're going to go back to my interview with Luke. A lot of people had questions about fatality rates and infection rates, and a lot of that is also... Um, epidemiology lingo. Actually, someone was asking me about it, and I actually pulled out my epidemiology 101 textbook that I was in that class for and started looking at those terms again. And I think that would be helpful for you to explain to people because people have a lot of concern around that. Um, and I think sometimes it's not understanding what, what those mean. Yeah, there, certainly. I think that's a very good question. There's a lot of There are a lot of terms out there that can be easily confused. Um, you pointed out some of them, infection rate, what does asymptomatic mean? What does symptomatic mean? What's a case mean? What's a case fatality rate? What's infection fatality rate? Things like that. But these are all different ways that we try and measure the burden of health conditions. Uh, and so it's no surprise that these are terms that are being used to try and measure the burden of coronavirus. Um, in general, uh, a person may be uh, susceptible. We can start with susceptible. Susceptible person is a person who has never been exposed to the virus. Uh, and uh, therefore, it means that if they are exposed to the virus, they could become infected and then they could become sick. And then they could have some other outcome associated with their illness. So, a susceptible person may become exposed, but they may not get sick. The reason they may not get sick is that they may not have got exposed to enough virus for the infection to take hold. They may have uh, some characteristic that allows their immune system to uh, capture the virus and prevent the virus from replicating sufficiently uh, to cause illness. 
Um, or they may not mount an immune response at all, and then they may get very sick uh, because their immune response did not uh, at all uh, kick into play. So there are lots of there are lots of uh, different ways that uh, an individual might react to uh, this exposure to the virus. Um, now, when we say asymptomatic, we mean that a person has uh, perhaps been infected but is not showing any symptoms. So our health system, when we look at the number of cases that are reported in the popular press, there are this many thousands of cases. Uh, this is the count of individuals who have been tested positive. Now, you normally would only be tested positive if you felt sick or tested for the illness. If you felt sick, you had signs of the uh, illness, and we needed to determine whether or not you had coronavirus or not. I think people can probably readily understand that there are many people that might have been sick even with coronavirus, but just stayed home and did not get tested and therefore do not get counted as a case. Mm -hmm. So our cases represent a much smaller number of individuals who are actually infected uh, than what that number would actually appear to be. Right now, we think that probably at least uh, there are three times as many people who have been infected with coronavirus than are actually cases. Um, now, that might sound scary, but actually, the more, the higher that number is, the higher that factor is, the better off we are. What that actually means is that if that number is very high, that factor of the cases that's actually infected but not uh, counted as a case, if that factor becomes very high, what that means is that many people can actually be exposed and become infected with the coronavirus without getting sick. That's a good thing. It doesn't reduce the absolute number of cases that we're seeing. Those are still true and they're still mm -hmm. real and those people are having those consequences. But what it means is that more people have been exposed and infected uh, than perhaps our health system would realize if we just counted cases. Now, when we talk about fatality, uh, ov obviously a lot of the uh, focus is on how many people have died, how many deaths were there today, how many deaths will be there be in the future, what do the models say in terms of the total number of deaths? Obviously, that's the worst outcome that we can have for the, a particular individual uh, that's infected. And so it's important to know what we call the fatality rate. Now, the fatality rate is just a proportion. It just, in this case, it just means of the number of people who are cases, how many of them might die. That's called the case fatality rate. And that would be a higher number than the number of people who are infected that might die, because we've just talked about how there are many more infections than cases. So in that case, the numerator of that rate becomes is the same. That's the number of people who unfortunately have died, while the numerator is different for the case fatality rate versus the infection fatality rate. I'm sorry, the denominator is different. The denominator mm -hmm. is much higher for the infection fatality rate, so it's a lower number. Now, often there's a discussion in popular press, well, is this worse than flu? You know, how different is yeah. this than influenza? Influenza is a big problem in the United States and around the world about, you know, depending on the year, we can have anywhere from 30,000, 50,000, 70,000 deaths from uh, influenza each year. And that, that number of deaths represents, it's a huge number of individuals die. It's a very important public health problem. Uh, it's a relatively low number from a statistical perspective. Uh, compared to the total number of people who get the flu each year, we think about, again, depending on the year and the strain of flu, we think it's about 0.1% of the 
uh, individuals who get the flu uh, actually die of the flu. Uh, so that's a small number. That means one in a thousand individuals. Um, most experts think that the coronavirus and most evidence that we have says that the true underlying uh, rate of death among those who get infected with coronavirus is higher than flu. It's almost certainly mm -hmm. higher than flu. Mm -hmm. uh, the reasons for that is both the virility of this disease. It causes a more, uh, you know, it, it causes worse outcomes in individuals who have it, but there are more individuals who are susceptible to coronavirus because every year there's a certain set of the population that has been exposed to the strain of flu that's going around and therefore they are immune. S secondly, we have a whole bunch of people in the country who get the vaccine against the flu, and that covers some extent of the people. The flu vaccine is not perfect, but it does protect a large number of individuals. So those things reduce the case, uh, the fatality rate of flu every year relative to coronavirus as well. So th that's another reason why it's higher. Um, now, the other thing to remember is that this is not a fixed number. The, you can't go, we can't really go around saying, you know, the infection, uh, the infection fatality rate uh, that is the risk of dying if you have uh, coronavirus infection is X. We can say that and it can mean one number. If, if we knew the truth and we could collect all the information about that, we would be able to calculate one number, but it's not necessarily a meaningful number in the same way that say the unemployment rate in the United States isn't always a meaningful number. There are plenty mm -hmm. of states or communities where the unemployment rate might be high and there are plenty of states and communities where the unemployment rate may be lower than the national number. So a single, num a single number captures a global truth, but doesn't necessarily apply to everyone in the same right. way that the, you know, the overall average number of you know, points that a basketball player in the NBA gets per game doesn't apply to every player. It's just a global number. And so mm -hmm. what epidemiologists try to do is they try and understand, as we talked about previously, the factors that make the infection fatality rate or the, the outcome likely to be worse in some individuals than others. And some mm -hmm. of the things that we certainly know, one of the most important factors that makes the outcome more likely to be poor is age. That's probably the most important thing. Uh, and then there are underlying health conditions uh, that uh, cause uh, the response to the virus to not be uh, as robust uh, and uh, may cause the uh, individual to uh, suffer uh, outcomes that are disastrous. Maybe, you know, uh, they may, may lead to hospitalization and then to intensive care and ventilation, uh, organ failure and death. And, and uncovering the reasons for that is critical because it helps us understand what the most vulnerable subpopulations might be. Some of mm -hmm. the factors are related to individuals themselves, like age and underlying health conditions. And some of them are more social factors. For example, individuals who live in nursing homes, um, mm -hmm. they, are, they are both have a higher age group and they also may get more exposure. And so the level of exposure of actual virus, uh, actual virons uh, may lead to a worse uh, case, a case with poorer outcomes than uh, an individual who becomes infected, but only becomes infected with a smaller, in a sense, dose, exposure dose. So there are lots of reasons. And these numbers don't, uh, aren't constant either over time. Um, we shouldn't expect the fatality rate to be the same uh, over time. 
We shouldn't expect mm -hmm. it to be the same over individuals, uh, over subsets of the population. Um, and so what we need to do is collect as much uh, accurate data as we can so that we can identify where uh, those poor outcomes will be, uh, will be the greatest. Does that help clear up some of yeah. the numbers? Yeah, that's definitely really helpful. There's a question um, a lot of people had that are about masks and gloves. Can you talk about that? Because I think there is a lot of inf different information about that. I know here in Brattleboro, um, I believe that it is mandatory when you're in a business now to be wearing them. And I would say that when I'm out and about, it seems that the majority of people I see are wearing them. But I know that lots of people have different opinions about it. So I would love to hear your thought on that. Yeah, so I think that um, there's been a little bit of evolution in the messaging around masks. And um, the, the consensus now really is that uh, masks can play uh, an important role uh, in reducing trans, uh, transmission of the virus. One of the, uh, I certainly, I think people would probably recognize that initially, you know, the message was that uh, masks don't necessarily uh, protect individuals uh, from the virus itself. And as the emphasis on wearing masks has changed, I think there's probably a lot of confusion about uh, whether or not that initial advice or that initial sort of viewpoint that masks don't necessarily protect the wearer, has that changed? And I think in general, the idea really is that masks still are not necessarily to protect the wearer, uh, but to protect individuals who are not, say, wearing a mask. The idea still is that the wearing of masks helps to prevent a person who perhaps is shedding the virus and uh, you know, releasing respiratory droplets that have uh, the virus. Mm -hmm. It reduces the number of respiratory droplets that such a person would release into the into the air. And I think the evolution is not that we've now determined that masks can protect the wearer. In fact, I think we still would say that the main function of the mask is to protect others who perhaps are not wearing a mask. But what we have learned is that there, there is much more respiratory droplet transmission uh, and that the virus seems to be able to remain in the air for a period of time. Uh, and so we really want to ensure that uh, people are wearing masks to, to protect others uh, that perhaps aren't. If many people are wearing masks, and uh, in most businesses now, I think across the country, uh, this is the norm that uh, we will need to be wearing masks when we are either in a business, a restaurant, in our workplace, uh, whether we are going to a, a church, uh, whether we are even outside in, in gatherings of individuals, uh, the uh, advice will be to wear a mask. And I think that's going to be an appropriate an important part of uh, dealing with the coronavirus uh, in the coming months uh, in order to ensure that we can keep transmission to a minimum. And what would you say on gloves? Do we need to be wearing those, say, at the grocery store? That's a good question. I, uh, In general, I think it depends probably on what your activities are. Um, if you're someone who is working perhaps in the grocery store uh, and uh, uh, touching many of the surfaces, uh, for extended period of time, it's probably helpful uh, to, for you to be wearing gloves. I'm not uh, sure that uh, someone who's going to the grocery store to pick up their own groceries necessarily needs to uh, be wearing gloves. The most important thing that we can do is wash our hands uh, with soap and water. Avoid touching our face with our hands. 
Uh, of course, avoid shaking hands, touching other people, but ensuring that if we go to the grocery store and then we do our business there, collecting our groceries, placing them in our bags, going back to our car, we then uh, wash our hands. You okay. wash your hands when you go outside and maybe interact or touch other surfaces, you come back, you want to wash your hands. I think, you know, washing our hands with soap and water is probably the most important thing that we can do. It's a very simple public health uh, message. It works. Uh, soap is available. Um, we don't necessarily need hand sanitizer. Uh, we just need soap and water and washing our hands frequently. Uh, this can reduce transmission uh, to a great extent, and not just of coronavirus, but in fact, our society as a whole could wash hands more frequently, avoid touching our face, our eyes, shaking hands, etc. We can also reduce transmission, for example, of influenza. Uh, as mm -hmm. we come into the fall, we will have you know another wave of seasonal influenza. And if we're all washing our hands more, we may be able to reduce influenza as well. I'm sure we will. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, as you know, you call epidemiology, it's a science, right? And I was curious your thoughts about why there are people in this country that are very anti-science. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think there are some people uh, in the United States and not just in the U.S., but across the world uh, mm -hmm. that uh, appear in their statements and the way they approach issues that are related to science that it seems as though they are anti-science. Like anything, it's uh, a spectrum. The reasons for it may be quite varied. For example, one a person may make statements that appear anti-science because they uh, have a strong uh, political or economic bent towards uh, less regulation. A classic example might be uh, climate change, uh, and uh, you know, being concerned that the things that we might have to do to uh, reduce the the impact, mitigate the impact of of global warming and climate change, uh, might include a lot of different regulations, a lot of different changes to our economic structure, economic activity. And so the response of such an individual might be to make comments that, uh, you know, that downplay the threat of, of climate change. And then the, you start to see that that conversation takes on maybe an anti-scientific tenor. And, and maybe the heart of the reason is that it's a sort of anti-regulatory or, you know, a, a concern about the economic impacts that might come from what, what we need to do. Uh, you know, and there are other reasons for maybe one thing, uh, for example, on the left, some people would say it's perhaps more on the left side of the political spectrum would be, um, you know, uh, actually related to vaccines uh, and uh, this idea that vaccines aren't something we want our children to be exposed to because we think that uh, uh, should uh, not be putting uh, chemicals into our body or we should have a take a natural approach. This might be something that uh, the way people then argue that they're not going to have their children vac vaccinated uh, might come from uh, that type of perspective. Um, you might have the same reason. I'm not going to uh, you know, have my child vaccinated because you are invoking some strong religious belief uh, and mm -hmm. you feel that, uh, you know, and, and so there are lots of reasons, I think, why people make statements that sound anti-science. It's quite uh, curious because I think, you know, people recognize on the whole that science has uh, been a, you know, a strong and important foundation. And I think on the whole, uh, you know, I, I think Americans are still intellectually curious and, and 
support science and want science to be able to improve their lives and they recognize many of the changes uh, in society over the last you know 20 50 100 years have been based on you know scientific progress and whether it's new medicines and different ways of approaching disease or medical conditions or whether it's the way technology has changed our lives for the better i think people recognize that science is behind that but there is a there is a stream of sort of anti-intellectualism uh, people don't like to be necessarily told what to do or think and some people think that when they hear uh, scientific expertise they are sort of being told maybe what to think and I, and maybe that's part of it as well but um, i think there yeah. are lots of reasons why we have segments of the society that that sound at times as though they are sort of anti-science it's a problem um, yeah. you know, it's a, i think it's a huge problem and and when it comes to public health it can be a huge uh, risk you know that I've heard that a lot of people uh, have expressed that even if there was a corona vaccine, they would not uh, want to be exposed to it, uh, which I think is not, uh, you know, it's really unfortunate. Uh, if we have a vaccine, it may well be true that we'll need a large number of individuals to actually take the vaccine for us to protect uh, the, the community at, at high levels. That was Immortal Technique, and we've been spending time with Luke. We were just having a conversation about anti-science in the United States, and I mean, not only in the United States, of course, uh, and thinking about the importance of vaccines and really understanding what they are. We're going to go to the last section of this interview where we talk about secondary consequences of uh, coronavirus, and also I asked Luke what gives him hope as a scientist, as someone in public health at this time. And I just want to jump off something that you said, because it was another question I had. You talked about vaccinations in children, and I'm sure you know this. I, I saw this uh, this week, um, an interview with Tim Robertson from uh, John Hopkins, and there is a new report that finds that 1.1 million children under five could die in the next six months from what they call secondary impacts of the pandemic, which ties in, I think, a lot or different things that we've been talking about this morning around epidemiology. And I also saw this thing about rural India and people dying of diarrhea and hunger across the world. I wanted you to just touch on the significance of secondary impacts and why it's also important to shed light on this, not only I want to say not only in poor countries, but also within the U.S. Yeah, I think it's a very good point. It's 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 essential that we uh, look at all aspects of the coronavirus in terms of its consequences. The focus, I think, rightly so, is on the individuals that have coronavirus and the uh, impact that's having on our health systems in an acute way, 
and the deaths, of course, from the coronavirus and how to reduce that immediate suffering. But it's very, also, it's very important to also recognize that there are many other impacts of a crisis like this. As Robertson and colleagues have pointed out, whenever there's a, a crisis, whether it's a global crisis or a more localized crisis, and resources in already resource-strapped health systems are directed at one particular issue at the expense of their normal efforts to try as best they can to cover the myriad health issues of a population, you are going to have secondary uh, poor impacts. And I think that there will, we'll continue to see studies that both estimate sort of prospectively, you know, if this virus and the focus of the health resources remain on this virus at a certain extent for a certain period of time, this is how many uh, you know, secondary concerns or, or impacts we're going to have. Uh, I think in that particular example you gave, the focus was on resource-poor health systems in, in low-resource countries redirecting their limited resources to combat corona and therefore not having the resources available for the everyday health services required to uh, you know, improve and protect the, the survival of, of, of mothers and babies and children. So the sort of mm -hmm. maternal neonatal child health world. Right. And it's not, limited, it's not limited to that example. That's a very good example of where the impacts could be particularly bad. But even we can look in our own country here in the United States. Uh, I think we don't have all the information we need yet, but there's plenty of information coming out uh, that indicate that uh, many health concerns, routine health care may be neglected in this country right now because health systems have uh, focused much on the coronavirus. And so the, uh, you know, both the preventative and the curative care that people need in order to reduce the, the poor outcomes of, our, uh, of the major health conditions in this country, uh, we're talking about heart cardiovascular conditions, whether we're talking about you know, mental health issues, whether we're talking about uh, other chronic uh, illnesses, all of these things can be neglected to some extent uh, when health uh, systems focus solely uh, on, on one condition. And uh, mm -hmm. I think we'll probably unfortunately see these secondary uh, impacts being quite, um, quite negative, in fact. Mm. What it tells us, I think, is that we need uh, stronger health systems. We need health systems that are able to not just react, which is, I think, what you see in the United States very much so. It's a very reactive health system. It's not a health system that is set up to uh, focus on prevention and capture an event like coronavirus uh, and uh, keep it uh, to a level that allows the health system to continue as it was. It's rather a sort of a system that reacts to crisis rather than being prepared for one. And so I think one of the biggest things we can learn, although we've, I think that we've had many examples where we should have learned in the past and we yet still have not, uh, we need to be more prepared. We need to have a resilient and well-funded public health uh, system in this country mm -hmm. uh, that allows us uh, to both uh, foresee events like this, not necessarily know when they're going to happen, but know that they will happen and not just know that they will happen, but then set up systems so that we're prepared for it. It's not as though the international and United States, uh, you know, scientific community was unaware that we would have a pandemic. Pandemics yeah. are part of human experience and we will continue to have pandemics like this. 
but we uh, aren't necessarily prepared. If we look at a country like South Korea, it has been held up as one of the countries in which the response to the pandemic uh, was most effective. And if you try and understand why, much of it is due to the fear that a prior SARS uh, epidemic or fear of a pandemic for SARS invoked in South Korea. And as a result of their experience uh, with uh, prior crises, health crises, they actually tried to set up systems that would put them in a position where they would be prepared. And now I think you see the benefit of that type of prevention, that type of forward thinking. And it's not easy to do. It's not easy for a health system like the one in the United States, which is largely, I feel that the health system in the United States is set up to make money. And that's an Mm -hmm. unfortunate way to think about the health system, because what it means is that it's very difficult then to prepare a health system in a preventative way, because it's not it's not sort of profit making to, uh, you know, put in place things that might mitigate uh, the outcomes of an event that might not occur. Uh, That's not a great way to make money. uh, And that's, you know, the, the health system in our country, unfortunately, is is committed to sort of efficiency um, cutting costs wherever possible, um, and as a result, you know, maximizing profit in the companies that are involved in the health system. And because of this, we unfortunately have, uh, the, you know, the aspects of the health system that are set up from a public health and prevention aspect are generally weak. Yeah. And so, Luke, I, I think that I'll ask you my last question for you is that Coming from your knowledge and long experience in public health and expertise, what gives you hope in a time like this? Knowing that we've had pandemics before is a source of hope and strength. Uh, I think we have been through, I mean, I know we have been through pandemics before uh, and we have come out the other side. Uh, We have had very difficult periods during those pandemics. Uh, one looks at the 1918 influenza uh, pandemic. Uh, it's often held up as the sort of prototype pandemic, the situation where a disease can move through the entire world, you know, create a crisis, create a lot of suffering. Many, many people died. Uh, and we're going through the same thing now. But we did come out on the other side. Um, I think we have, you know, another thing that gives me hope is that we have an extraordinary amount of scientific knowledge that we can bring to bear, scientific expertise that we can bring to bear to this problem. And people from many, many, many different countries uh, and institutions around the world are working on this problem uh, around the clock. And that that gives me a lot of hope that we will have either success uh, with a vaccine, we may have success with identifying uh, different treatments, antiviral treatments that might help uh, in terms of uh, speed recovery times or reduce the, the poor outcomes associated with infection. Uh, we may you know, improve the way we even care for individuals who have uh, the uh, coronavirus. Uh, and we may, uh, hopefully, uh, improve the way we set up our health systems. And so those are some of the things that uh, you know, give me some hope. I know that we will uh, come out on the other side of this pandemic. And uh, I think we all can do our part from individuals who are you know, following the guidelines and the advice uh, that comes from you know, our leaders 
uh, and individuals who are drawing on scientific expertise to make those recommendations. Some are not drawing on ex uh, such expertise. And so that makes it a challenge for individuals. But I think if we can all uh, do our part to try and reduce transmission, that can help uh, the community as a whole. Uh, and uh, I think rest assured that uh, much of the scientific community in public health uh, and, and medicine is, is, is working around the clock to try and come up with solutions uh, that will help us see a, a better day. Yeah. Great. Well, Luke, I want to thank you so much for your time this morning. I think that there's just been so much that you've given us just to really understand and clear up a lot of the messaging out there. I know that you're also have three kids at home and you and your wife, Bree, are, are juggling many things like many other parents. So again, I really want to thank you for your time today. Oh, you're most welcome. Glad to chat about it, Anna. Thanks very much for the opportunity to, uh, you know, talk about this issue. And hopefully our, our conversation has provided some uh, clarification for, for others. Okay, that is it for us today on Indigo Radio. We want to, again, thank Dr. Luke Milani for spending a lot of time yesterday helping us understand and think through some of this stuff. I'm going to go out with... A Australian ballad from 1895. It's a very famous Australian song, Waltzing Matilda. And Waltzing Matilda tells the story of a man drifting, um, or what they say, waltzing from job to job. And the song is very associated with Australia's sheep shearer strike, which one of the pieces of that was poor peasants versus wealthy landowners. I'm playing it because I think I'd like to dedicate the show to my parents. They love this version of Waltzing Matilda so much, and they often play it. And I think Luke and I and the rest of my siblings can thank them for their intertwined beliefs in science and in caring for those around us. And I think that that combo can really help us push toward change in this world. So thanks so much for listening all, and we'll be back next Sunday.